Welcome to part two of the Nixon Foundation presentation on the 50th anniversary of the Kent State killing. I'm Hugh Gillett, the president of the Nixon Foundation, in my Beltway studio, from which I normally broadcast my radio show. Today, joined by James Rosen with Sinclair Broadcasting, the author of an amazing book on John Mitchell, The Strong Man. He is himself, James is, an expert on Richard Nixon. He has studied him extensively. He knows the presidency intimately. So even while you tune in every night and you see James on Sinclair commenting on reporting from the White House about President Trump, today we're looking 50 years back to what happened 50 years ago on May 4th. James Rosen, in the first part of our conversation, we talked about a speech that the president gave on April the 30th, announcing the Cambodian incursion. What happened next? And, of course, you just take the floor. What happened on May 4th? After President Nixon's evening address on April 30, 1970, announcing U.S. military incursion into Cambodia, a purportedly neutral country that North Vietnam had been using as a sanctuary and uh, offensive launch uh, area, the anti-war left, particularly the violent anti-war left, exploded in fury. Uh, on the part of the president's critics, uh, which ranged from pacifistic students who were good and, and, and earnest people, uh, to uh, your average countercultural hippies, uh, all the way to the most violent, hardcore members of domestic terrorist groups in the country, active in the country at that time, such as the Weather Underground, the Black Panthers, and so on. Um, Nixon's move into Cambodia was seen not only as uh, an offense, a moral offense, um, a renunciation of the uh, the plan by the president to end the war, but in instead of widening of it, it was also seen as an opportunity uh, to galvanize their base, um, to make a another push, not only toward theoretically ending the war through protest, uh, but also acclimating um, what we might today call persuadables to the acceptability of political violence itself. This was an opportunity. Um, and this played out most tragically on the campus of Kent State University on May the 4th, 1970. Um, um, the song uh, Four Days in Ohio by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, which was written and recorded right after May 4, 1970, and released very soon thereafter, and which endures as a classic rock classic, um, really framed this for uh, American audiences four dead in Ohio because the National Guard were called to quell the unrest at Kent State University uh, and the protests climax in a confrontation with the National Guardsmen where the Guardsmen fired on the crowd and four students at Kent State University were killed that day, bringing the U.S. war in Vietnam home from foreign shores to American soil. But it's really more properly remembered in my view and in the book I wrote about these events, The Strong Man, John Mitchell and the Secrets of Watergate, as four days in May, because there was a lot of unrest in Kent and on the Kent State campus that caused those guardsmen to be deployed to that campus by the governor of Ohio at the time, James Rhodes, uh, and which in retrospect made the fatal confrontation between the students and the guardsmen uh, depressingly predictable here. There were not that many guards, and I, I'd like you, if, to the extent that you feel comfortable going through numbers from this reserve, this remove. I watched it on television. My cousin was on the campus. My mother was brought, and it seemed like a legion of guardsmen. I believe there were two dozen, and I don't know why they were there. I don't know what 
Governor Rhodes, a long and able governor of Ohio, elected four times as governor, was thinking what had led up to the deployment of troops with live ammunition on a camp campus. After the president's April 30 speech, uh, hundreds of camp college campuses across the country were shut down by students' strikes. Um, just as today with the pandemic, in a sense, as college students across the country suddenly found that the rest of their academic season, their semesters, were canceled, and they had to find their own ways home uh, because of the student unrest that swept across the country in the wake of the president's speech. Um, but these were often violent protests, uh, and bombings were going on, student strikes were going on. Um, there were confrontations in the streets of New York at the time. I mean, it was a it was a very anxious, scary time. And um, Kent State University, which was in the great middle of the country, as a book about the Kent State killings was called, its title was The Great Middle of the Country. Kent State was not uh, on the East Coast, such as Berkeley in California, which was the birthplace of the free speech movement and had seen a lot of radical activity. It was not Harvard or Yale, uh, where there had been student strikes, or Columbia, where there had been an effort by uh, leftist uh, domestic terrorists to seize the campus. In fact, they did seize the campus and hold hostages for a while. This was Kent State University in good, solid Midwestern Ohio. Why did it happen there? The fact is that there had been an increased radicalization, a dedicated effort, at radicalizing the campus population at Kent State through 1969. Members of SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, which is a far left-wing group uh, that originated in actually in Michigan and, and spread to various college campuses as a kind of earnest liberal protest movement, splintered in 1969 with a number of its leaders becoming members of a domestic terrorist group called the Weather Underground, which was in the business of planting bombs at the Capitol, the Pentagon, um, in Georgetown, uh, in various places, um, uh, the, the members, a couple of the members of the Weather Underground actually visited Kent State campus in 1969, seeking to radicalize students there. It's a long forgotten event. I didn't know that. And the Weathermen, of course, name for the Bob Dylan song, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. The song so. being Subterranean Homesick Blues, yeah. yes. Um, in any case, um, three days before the killings at Kent State, so on May 1, 1970, there was a riot in downtown Kent, again, purportedly, pretextually, on the basis of the president's speech about the U.S. incursion into Cambodia. Uh, what my research into Kent State shows, and what I've published are uh, previously unpublished FBI documents showing that the riots, the rioting in Kent um, in, on May 1, 1970, which was the worst that that city had ever seen, 50 windows, store windows smashed, a jewelry store looted, uh, the protesters were hurling bricks and rocks. Uh, police officers were injured. Uh, this was real rioting in downtown Kent, Ohio. It's so hard to imagine as someone who grew up here. It's a sleepy little college town. It's not Manhattan. It's not Washington, D.C. It ain't Berkeley. James right. Berkeley. It was a Midwest, quiet Midwest town with a with a proud uh, football tradition. Well, golden flashes, you betcha. And um, um, that rioting was severe. Uh, my research, using previously unpublished FBI documents, confirmed that, in fact, it was a premeditated event. Uh, most of the histories of the time, including the official reports, described it as spontaneous. It was not. The next critical event that occurred was, uh, again, in the hours uh, before the Kent State killings, about a day or so before the Kent State killings, before the National Guard had even been called out and deployed to that campus. Um, uh, Hardcore militant students and outside agitators 
who were organizing them um, covertly burned down the ROTC building, uh, military recruitment chapter on the Kent State campus. That's a pivotal event, long forgotten, because it was the event that caused Governor Rhodes in Ohio to deploy the National Guard to the Kent State campus. Now, James, you just used a term which is almost a laughing punchline, outside agitators. And when, in fact, people do their researches into the war, as they would discover today, people organize campuses for political reasons because students are willing to be organized. Bernie bros, whether it'll be Biden or Trump, whether it'll be Charlie Kirk and his gang on the right or, or, or another gang on the left, or outside agitators come to organize and get people to go out. What were these agitators looking for? Recruits to their militant cause. Um, it, it was a characteristic of the anti-war movement during the Vietnam era that earnest protest groups uh, comprised of, of thoughtful students and, and housewives and businessmen and, and people from all walks of life who joined the protest. Vietnam was seen as an elective war, not a war of necessity, such as World War II had been. Um, uh, those movements, however earnest, always attracted the attention of more militant uh, subterranean groups that sought to co-opt the fervor, the earnest anti-war fervor of those groups for their own militant ends, with their ultimate goal being nothing less than a revolution in this country uh, that certainly would have, uh, in their wildest uh, scenarios um, uh, have have swept the White House and 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 done violence to what they called at that time the war machine. You see, from the remove of fifty years, people won't believe it, James. Ray. They just won't believe that youngsters, and I say that as a term embracing anyone from sixteen to thirty, really could have believed in violent revolution. We're too rich. We're just our our rhetoric, as you said in part one. Is, is all dopamined up via electronic gadgetry. No one believes in you know the Shea t-shirt anymore, but it was a real deal in 1970. Well, and Kent State was the pivotal event that broke the back of the anti-war movement in a sense. I want to quote from Milton Viorst, a writer at the time who said, at Kent State, the country seemed to announce that whoever among the young felt deeply enough to continue the practices of the 1960s had to be ready to die for them. Few were ready to die, Bjorst concluded, and so the decade reached its end. And that's why you see the uh, me, what Tom Wolfe, again, Tom Wolfe called the me decade, sprout up after, after in the 1970s. Uh, people would rather stay in bed, uh, uh, you know, explore their inner selves, learn kung fu, take up pottery, move to California, open a yarn store, and do anything but protest, uh, protest the government anymore. Um, there was an exhaustion with the protest movement by the time that Kent State happened. And President Nixon, one of the previously unpublished documents I'm proud to have published in The Strongman, is a conversation with John Mitchell and others in which H.R. Uh, Haldeman, the chief of staff, is taking notes. And the notes uh, quote President Nixon, this is before the taping system existed. So there are the note, Haldeman notes are our best source of what Nixon was thinking and saying in those years. He said, people are fed to the teeth with rioting students. The public is against them. Um, and so um, there's a, the, one wow, of the reasons. That's so interesting. So, one of the reasons why we find it inconceivable today that anyone would go to these lengths 
and hurl rocks at cops and things like that uh, is because Kent State was the event that convinced everybody of the um, of the futility and inadvisability of doing that sort of thing. We, we do see in the Antifa uh, collisions and in right-wing extremism uh, aberrations from the norm, but they are recognized as aberrations from the norm and ridiculed or expelled. And, and the 95% of the country, I would even say 97% of the country, want nothing to do with the 1.5% on either end of the, mm -hmm. of the bell curve. Not so in 1970. So and if I can... Introduce one one thought in regard to that. Uh, you mentioned the the rise of fringe militant groups today, like Antifa, the alt right, and so forth. And those are frightening scenes. What we saw in Charlottesville might be that very part of our conversation. Um, um, in any case, let's move on. I, I, let's go to the the burning down of the ROTC building. Jim Rose. Again, you might have to time time, time out. All right, we can edit this. We right? Can Just, edit okay. This. So I'm so sorry. Yeah. Um, a pivotal event along the way was 1995, the 25th anniversary, which just passed. Um, a, one of the former members of the Black Panthers uh, commented at the time that it was remarkable for him to witness um, the largest act of domestic terrorism since the, the days of the 60s and 70s had been perpetrated not from the far left, but from the far right, which was where the conspirators in Oklahoma City originated. So, James, when, when Jim Rhodes gets involved in this, his relationship with Nixon is very old, uh, very well-worn. goes back to the 1962 attempt to stop, um, uh, excuse me, 1964 attempt to stop Barry Goldwater. He is an old Paul. He's old school, filled roads, delivered jobs, filled the machine, four times elected. Is he overwhelmed by events? Is he overtaken by the complexity of this situation? Rhodes was an older man. Um, his ability to understand the cross cult, uh, the cross cultural kind of ferment that was taking place, even in the great middle of the country, was probably fairly limited. Um, but once the ROTC building was burned down on the Kent State campus, uh, once there had been unprecedented, they saw the need for uh, stability to be brought to that region, uh, and so he deployed the National Guard the Kent State campus. What is largely another event largely forgotten, first of all, I want to point out that my research with the previously unpublished FBI documents also established that, like the rioting in Kent, the burning down of the ROTC building, which has again largely been portrayed as spontaneous, was also premeditated. Um, the, the guardsmen who were summoned to the Kent State campus were scarcely older than the students who were protesting. They were basically from the same generation. They had taken very different paths in life, and some of that uh, devolved down to class differences because some of the guardsmen's parents didn't have money to send them to college. Um, in any case, when Governor Rhodes deployed them, the guardsmen had just come from a very taxing situation in which they had had to restore uh, order after a wildcat strike, uh, a union strike elsewhere, I believe in Cleveland, Ohio. So the guardsmen were operating on very little sleep when they were deployed to the Kent, Kent State University uh, on May, I believe, May 3rd, 1970. So, James, did it rise to the level, the ROTC burning and the riot, did it rise to the level of the presidency and the attorney general? Were they aware? Were they monitoring Kent or was the convulsion across the country in response to the April 30th so uniform that Kent did not, it was part of the noise, not the 
absolutely well said. It was it was not on their radar simply because there was so much of that going on across the country, again, in ways that are inconceivable for students today to, to fathom. So at what time, if you can just give us a timeline of the day? So um, through the afternoon of May 4, um, again, uh, my research into the previously unpublished FBI documents shows that um, that members of the violent anti-war left the domestic terrorist groups had been seeking to, if you will, get their claws into the student, the nonviolent student anti-war movement that was already burgeoning on Kent State like many other campuses. And in a very premeditated way, um, there was a rally held uh, for uh, the Kent State campus at, a, at, I think it was high noon on May 4, 1970. The guardsmen were deployed. Um, and again, what has always been portrayed as a kind of a spontaneous event where the guardsmen, for reasons never fully discerned, just simply started to open up their M1 rifles on the protesters and killed four of them and wounded not at least nine others. There's some thought that a wounded student uh, escaped without uh, being registered to any hospital or by law enforcement. But here you had four students dead and nine others injured, at least nine others, um, that this was totally spontaneous and inexplicable, that there was no event that caused the guardsmen to fire. My research, again, into previously unpublished FBI documents, and I've published this in the Washington Times subsequent to my publication of The Strongman, uh, established that despite the conclusions of the Department of Justice run by President Nixon's friend, Attorney General John Mitchell, that there was no sniper uh, present on the campus that day, that there was no fire on the guardsmen, that they were, this was largely unprovoked, this massacre. Um, in fact, the FBI's own investigation, and these documents weren't declassified for many years later, and they weren't published until I published them in 2010, uh, the 40th anniversary of Kent State. They showed that the FBI forensics developed evidence that in fact there were at least two shots fired uh, at the guard prior to the guard opening up their now notorious 13-second volley of 67 shots at the protesters. Well, James, as we sit here in 2020, that's news to me. So obviously, I didn't read the 2010 piece, and we haven't talked about this before. I like to come to the interviews about specific events. Not ignorant of the specifics, but open to being surprised, as I am right now surprised. So what would the considered verdict of history be on this subject? Debated or open and shut one way or the other? Um, I think it would be more open to debate than it is today, Hugh. Uh, history has largely concluded with a capital C uh, that the killings at Kent State were totally unprovoked um, and that the guardsmen inexplicably started to open fire. And in 13 seconds of, of, of 67 shots, claimed those four dead in Ohio. Uh, but the, the documents I, I saw not only established that uh, the FBI had detected two bullet holes in a statue in a tree, uh, that were closer to the guardsmen that, that indicated, according to the, the, the document itself, it said it indicated that the guardsmen were probably fired on first. There was also um, a lot of witness testimony recorded from these events. To be fair, there were a lot of witnesses who said that the guardsmen were not fired upon first, uh, but um, never did the Justice Department in all of its official pronouncements about this and cases and litigation related to Kent State went on for 10 years after these events. Uh, never anywhere did the Department of Justice acknowledge that it was sitting on FBI interviews uh, that were very precise in establishing that the guardsmen were fired upon first, um, that in fact uh, the protesters were violent, and uh, in fact even that the, that the protests were so premeditated 
that the protesters were using radio wavelengths to monitor the actions and movements of the National Guard. And none of this was ever made public until I published those documents in 2010. Now, Jane, I do not believe that the 50th anniversary will gain the sort of attention it would otherwise do because of the fact that the world is engulfed in the pandemic. Um, are you doing anything for Sinclair uh, to look deeply into the events of that? Or again, has pandemic uh, news and coverage and indeed um, almost an unhealthy level of attention it's obliterated everything else. Has that wiped away any look back? I'm very proud to work for the Sinclair Broadcast Group. It's the largest owner of television stations across the country. Uh, my work uh, in Washington airs across all of those Sinclair affiliates across the country uh, and on their websites and on my Twitter feed, at James Rosen TV. Um, our mission right now is to devote our coverage to the coronavirus, which is a really a once-in-a-lifetime global event uh, that defines every member of the generation that endures it, sort of the way the Great Depression and World War II did for previous generations. Um, so uh, I'll be squarely focused on various aspects of the coronavirus, but I might, I think, uh, inspired by you, Hugh, uh, I think that I will try to write something about uh, the Kent State event. I've done so uh, for the 40th anniversary and for the 25th anniversary, revealing new documents uh, as my research was progressing along those years. But you are quite right that Kent State can never be forgotten. There was a time when Kent State, May 4, 1970, the 4th of May, which is another title of one of the books about Kent State, um, was so deeply seared into the American consciousness that it was like December 7, 1941, uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor, which FDR called a date that will live in infamy. 9-11 um, um, has an advantage, so to speak, events actually named after the day on the calendar. But today, sadly, and it's been this way for a while, uh, the 4th of May used to be an annual but a moment uh, on which to reflect about um, a, a great number of issues that were raised by the Kent State killings. Uh, they're sadly forgotten today. Um, but so I think it's good that we pay attention in venues like this. And yes, I, I plan to write something. Even as we conclude part two, James Rosen, uh, the four dead, the nine wounded, uh, the National Guardsmen whose lives were changed, the families that lost loved ones. Um, it, this is not a, a formal remembrance of those people, but it is the remembrance of a cultural moment. There is a picture. It is one of those pictures that everybody knows, instantly identified, yes. and actually solidifies the memory of an event. And as I watch the documentaries, which are now coming out about the 60s music scene, about David Crosby, Echoes in the Canyon, Echoes from the Canyon, et cetera, Dylan, they've all got a framing of the story that is complete. I don't know that it will ever move. And so I'd like to I'd like to conclude the day. Were they aware that they were suddenly in the middle of history and would forever be there? It was instantaneously clear uh, from the campus of Kent State, where blood was spilled, to the Oval Office um, and and any other. Uh, there had been, through the civil rights movement, and then through the free speech movement in Berkeley, and then through the anti-war movement, uh, a growing, mounting escalation of tactics and confrontation. Um, uh, the, uh, and this is not to equate the civil rights movement with the other movements, uh, or the tactics that were used by Martin Luther King and his followers with those that were used by uh, the hardcore militants uh, in the era of Kent State. 
but the the fever of the country had slowly been rising and the shedding of that blood and the and the dissemination of that famous photograph by John Philo, uh, a student, uh, where it showed a, a young runaway uh, posed in anguish uh, on her knees with her arms outstretched, screaming and crying over the body of one of the four slain, uh, blood trickling from the head of that poor student. Um, that captured the, the, the time uh, in a way that only photographs, which are snapshots, can do. If you were to see the wider version of this photograph uh, than the one than what we're showing right now, an uncropped version of it, you would see some students simply standing there, kind of gawking, um, uh, which is a, a, a adds a dimension to the photograph that that um, that is important. Um, and uh, when this photograph reverberated around the world, it was put on the cover of Newsweek. Um, and they and they zoomed in on the young girl and the slain protester to the point where the image was grainy. And they washed the entire cover in a kind of psychedelic blue. And they slapped a diagonal headline across the top right of the magazine with words saying, Nixon's home front, uh, as if to stamp culpability for the Kent State killings um, uh, in, on the hands of Richard Nixon. And um, it was a time when the news media were taking liberties in a way they never had before. And that cover is also etched in my mind as an appropriation of that photograph uh, that helped shape early opinion about uh, this tragic event and where responsibility for it ultimately led. A uh, reporter from New York Magazine to Cap Part 2, James Rosen, in the Rose Garden not long ago asked President Trump if he was not responsible for that then 55,000 plus deaths as a result of COVID and made an explicit comparison to Vietnam. I was jarred by that because it, it has a premise of proximate cause, which is so bereft of any logic or law that it's almost laughable. Newsweek also made a premise uh, of proximate cause in their cover. As we close part two, was that just? I didn't see the cover, I'm afraid. The Newsweek cover, I mean, the one that you just referenced. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Do you believe that Newsweek cover was just? No, I think it was um, It was an effort by um, what was then and what remains today a mostly liberal-dominated news media to um, seize this moment to damage the political fortunes of President Nixon and to assign, um, however indirectly, culpability for these tragic deaths of these students um, uh, to him. Um, and President Nixon's initial response was to fire off a statement through the press secretary, the White House press secretary, Ron Ziegler, that in essence said that um, anytime dissent turns to violence, it invites tragedy. And that was seen as a very cold response to uh, the events of Kent State. Um, but uh, ultimately, the president worked quietly behind the scenes against the advice of Attorney General Mitchell to prevent the impanelment of a grand jury to investigate culpability by the guardsmen. And so uh, against Mitchell's wishes, there was no grand jury convened uh, at that point. Later, many years later, I think four years later, uh, a grand jury was impaneled. And as I say, civil litigation um, trying to, um, to secure um, uh, jury verdicts for damages against the guardsmen uh, proceeded well into 1980.
When we come back for part three, we'll talk about the immediate aftermath of Kent State 50 years ago, May 5th, with James Rosen of Sinclair Broadcasting, author of The Strong Man, noted historian of the Nixon era and friend. Please join us for part three.